Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me, Bobby Bascom, at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As U.S. Senators and others call for criminal investigations into the oil spill disaster, the gusher in the Gulf has citizens and officials fighting the oil on the boats, in the marshes, and on the beaches. The oil is going to go somewhere. We know it's in the Gulf, and we feel at this time there's really no area on the Gulf Coast that's, that's truly safe from the effects of this current oil spill. We report from the front lines in Louisiana and Texas. Plus, they may smell enticing, but those fragrances you splash on your skin may be bad news for your health. There's a giant loophole in federal law that allows companies to hide compounds, not label them, in perfumes, colognes, and body sprays. What you don't know might really hurt you. We'll have those stories and more this week on Living on Earth, so stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. This week, a scientific controversy that affects just about all of us. The question, how safe are cell phones? And now a major study that was supposed to answer that question is open to question itself. The so-called Interphone study started a decade ago when scientists in 13 nations set out to learn if there was a link between cell phone use and brain cancer. At last, the findings of this eagerly anticipated study have been released, and researchers found that, well, here are some of the headlines reporting the results. Mobile phone study finds no solid link to brain tumors. The Guardian, UK. Heavy use of cell phones may increase tumor risk. Globe and Mail, Canada. Mobile phones are safe. Die Welt, Germany. So if you're confused, you're not alone. Consider these contradictory findings. High cell phone usage was linked to a doubling of the risk of deadly brain cancers called gliomas. But some people who never or very rarely use cell phones seem to have more tumor risk than moderate users. Epidemiologist Elizabeth Cardis headed the radiation group which conducted the Interphone study. The study is very complex and the interpretation is not clear. I mean, we have not demonstrated conclusively that there's a risk, but I think it's really important to note that that does not mean that there's no risk. We have a number of elements in the study which suggest that there might actually be a risk. And particularly, we have seen uh, an increased risk of uh, glioma, which is one type of uh, malignant brain tumor, in the heaviest users in the study, in particular on the side of the head where the tumor developed, and in particular in the temporal lobe, which is the part of the brain closest to the ear, so closest to where the phone is held. And that's the part of the brain that has most of the exposure from the phone. Indeed, I'm looking at something known as Appendix 2, a table in your study, that shows for gliomas is what? twice as likely to have one of these brain tumors if somebody was a heavy user of cell phones uh, over a long period of time with a good 95% confidence uh, rating for this finding. Why is there such a confusion about this? Why isn't this a valid finding? 
Well, we don't know whether the finding is correct. Basically, there are a number of uh, uh, possible biases which are typical of these kinds of epidemiological study, which could have affected the results. And um, this increased risk could be due to something we call recall bias. So we really can't conclude that there is a risk from our findings because of the potential uh, bias. Why not simply look at their cell phone records? We've tried to do that, actually, in, in a smaller-scale validation study. We, we had hoped we'd be able to do that on many people in the study, but unfortunately, at the time we did the interphone study, it was very difficult to go back uh, in operators' records and get long-time historical records uh, for the study subjects. By the way, the number of minutes per day that somebody used a cell phone that considered a high use averaged, what, less than 30 minutes a day? Yes, that's correct. I mean, interphone was basically carried out between 2000 and 2004, depending on the country. And we asked about people's long-term, you know, historical use of mobile phones. We were asking about their use in the late 1980s, early 1990s, at a time when mobile phones were used much less than today. And one of the reasons we are concerned about the results of the study, even, even though we can't conclude for sure, is that where we see the increase is in these people. Half an hour a day for 10 years was a high use in the participants in our study, but it's a normal or even a relatively low use today. You're using a cell phone right now as we speak. I am using a cell phone right now, yes. How worried are you? Uh, I don't use a cell phone very much, and uh, when I can, I basically try to find ways to reduce my exposure, either using a landline or using the speaker of my phone. Uh, Do you have any children, Dr. Cardis? Yes, I have two children. How old are they, and are are they allowed to use cell phones? (laughs) They are 8 and 11 years old, and they do not have a cell phone. They use it very, very rarely when when they have to, uh, but uh, they don't have a cell phone. Now, Dr. Cardis, you're an epidemiologist. You're not a journalist. So it's probably unfair of me to ask you to do my job. But if you had to write the headline for this story, what would it be? That's a very good question. What, what, what is your headline? Uh, in my opinion, and, and as I said, this is a very complex study, and these biases uh, and errors limit the interpretation. So we have different people in the study group interpreting the results differently. In my personal opinion, I think we have a number of uh, elements that suggest a possible increased risk among the heaviest users. And because the heaviest users in our study are considered low users today, I think that's something of concern. Epidemiologist Elizabeth Cardis directed the World Health Organization's Interphone Study. Dr. Cardis spoke to us by cell phone from Barcelona. We turn now to the massive BP oil well blowout in the Gulf of Mexico and the question of criminal behavior. At least eight U.S. senators, all Democrats from the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee, are calling for a criminal investigation of the disaster. Jonathan Turley teaches at George Washington University Law School, and he says it's a matter of when, not if, the companies and employees involved will face grand jury probes. When you have an environmental accident of this size, there is a presumption that criminal investigations will follow. There's a number of reasons for that. One is the relatively low amount of civil penalties that come with these environmental disasters. Uh, Congress, which is so vociferous these days about combating big oil, uh, has spent the last couple of decades doing the bidding of many of these same companies. Uh, The best example of that 
is the Oil Pollution Act of 1990. That act has a perfectly ludicrous penalties cap of $75 million. That's nothing. I mean, that's actually less than what these companies would spend on litigation and something like the Exxon spill. So what often happens is that absent criminal prosecution, there's little hope to get serious penalties against a company like BP or uh, these contractors. So the three companies involved here, BP, Transocean, and Halliburton, what's their criminal record from the past? Well, BP particularly has had recent problems in terms of environmental accidents and criminal liability. The most obvious was in 2005 in a Texas explosion that uh, was fatal and ultimately cost that company and its subsidiaries around $373 million uh, in penalties. What's the basis of the law to go after these firms on a criminal basis? The most obvious charge would be criminal negligence, and they will look specifically at the blowout preventer allegation, whether in fact that device had been damaged previously to the knowledge of corporate officials. The second most likely criminal charge would be false statements, either in government reports or in statements with investigators after the explosion. With the level of finger-pointing that we have seen between BP and Transocean and Halliburton, there's an increased chance that some officials might give false or misleading statements to investigators. Officials often make situations worse by spinning data or hiding data or misleading investigators. Let's look specifically at any possible criminality around the failure of the backup system, this blowout protection system. What might be criminal? around the failure of this blowout protection system? Well, we still need to know a lot more, but there has been an allegation that the blowout preventer was damaged before this latest explosion. If that's the case, the criminal investigators are going to be looking for knowledge by BP or Transocean or one of the other companies involved. That's a critical system needed for the safe operation of the rig. If company officials instructed workers to continue to operate without that system functioning properly, it most certainly can be a criminal violation. At this point, who's in trouble? How far up the ranks of BP could this go? Well, what we have to see is the paper trail, particularly connected to the blowout preventer. Who was aware if this device had been previously damaged? Who ordered the continuation of production and operation. Those are the questions federal prosecutors will look at. It is not uncommon to see those types of inquiries go very high in a company. If, for example, the blowout preventer was known to be damaged and an order was given to continue to operate regardless of the dangers, the federal investigators will look at who gave those instructions, but also what policies led to those instructions. Now, what happens then is that the prosecutors will start with the low-lying fruit. Uh, If they have someone who's at risk of a criminal uh, penalty, they will hammer them, and they will get their own lawyer, and that lawyer is likely to ask their client whether they have anyone else to give up. That's what happens in these cases. If you've got somebody who looks dead to rights on a criminal charge, their lawyers will tend to look for a deal. That deal usually involves handing over someone higher up in the company. What's the likelihood that people will go to jail over this case? 
Well, there's an expectation of the public that a disaster of this size will result in serious punishment, including jail time. You have various potential defendants here as companies, and each of those companies has literally hundreds of people who were involved on some level with this case. What has a bigger impact on companies, civil or criminal cases? The important thing about criminal penalties is not just that corporate officials can go to jail, but that the civil cap on penalties under the Oil Pollution Act of 1990 are no longer relevant. In criminal law, you can often get a multiplier. You can actually get more than uh, the actual damage found by the court as part of the penalty. So for BP or these other companies, criminal prosecution could have a devastating impact, not just simply in terms of the actual penalties, but the impact that it will have on their stock. As for their officials, they are personally accountable under criminal law if there is evidence that they knew of these problems or that they intentionally lied to investigators. If you're an attorney for one of these companies, these are going to be rather long nights because you can't really control what people are saying without being accused of obstruction. So you have a lot of people talking to a lot of investigators, and any of those communications can technically become a basis for criminal prosecution if they are evasive or false. Jonathan Turley is a professor of law at George Washington University Law School. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. Just ahead, the view from the Gulf Coast. And why a city garden needs chickens. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Recently, a reporter with Sky News asked BP CEO Tony Hayward what he thought the oil gushing from his company's blown-out well will do to the Gulf of Mexico. I think the environmental impact of this disaster is likely to have been very, very modest. It's impossible to say, and we will mount, as part of the aftermath, a very detailed environmental assessment. But everything we can see at the moment suggests that the overall environmental impacts of this will be very, very modest. Well, as much as we might want to think that Mr. Hayward is right, many researchers all along the Gulf Coast suspect otherwise. They are scrambling to get a handle on the ecological effects of this massive oil spill. And living on Earth's Jeff Young has been scrambling along with some of them. His story begins in southern Louisiana. Grand Isle is about as far south as you can get in Louisiana by land or what's left of the land anyway. Erosion and subsidence have melted miles of the surrounding marsh into open water. But this is still crucial bird habitat and an important time for birds, breeding season. There are at least terns mating over there on the beach, so that would be a a normal breeding season behavior. Melanie Driscoll has binoculars pressed to her eyes, as she often does. She directs Audubon's Louisiana program. They're just toward the edge of the water. Um, it's a very quick event. It's over already. They're not big on afterglow, are they? Just... <laughs> <laughs> Bird copulation is a fairly uh, short-lived event uh, without a lot of ceremony, usually. The male tern flies back to his mate with a gift, a small fish. In a normal year, this would be a happy time and a happy scene for Driscoll watching resident species take to the nests and thousands of migrants pass through. 
But this is not a normal year. The long line of bright orange oil booms just offshore reminds us. The dozen or so oil platforms on the horizon remind us. And everything about the turn's little love scene here now seems loaded with danger. Is the oil in the water here? Is it in that fish he just caught? They don't get any forewarning. They eat the food that's out there. They drink the water in the Gulf. And they're driven to breed where they've bred before. Whether that habitat's disturbed or not just affects their success, not their drive to breed here. There are globally important bird areas in these marshes and barrier islands. And some are now taking oil. Driscoll is here to keep tabs on what is likely to be a grim toll. The oil is slowly taking effect, just as many birds are most vulnerable. She takes meticulous notes on the sanderlings, turnstones, red knots, brown pelicans. The point is not just to look for oiled or dead birds, but to detect the absence of birds. Because birds will die undiscovered, we are less reliant on a body count in this spill because it is so different than eventually a change in in abundance, a change in numbers. You might not know what's really going on here until next year. We likely won't know for a year. For some species, other species, many birds uh, of northern gannets, particularly young, stay out in the Gulf for a couple of years until they reach breeding maturity. If those birds are dying, it may be three or four years before we notice a change in the nesting population. Boy, it's so complicated, the interaction of things here. I mean, uh, as a layperson, your impression is... Is there oil on the bird? No? Well, okay. But there's a lot more to it than that. There's a saying about ecology that it's not rocket science. It's a lot more complicated than that. We're looking at a system. The birds rely not just on their feathers insulating them. They rely on food chains that are underwater or in the sand. They rely on protection from predators by being familiar with their surroundings. It's very complicated. And it gets more complicated. Several fish stocks in the Gulf were already in serious decline. The mouth of the Mississippi already sees a massive dead zone of low oxygen each year. The land is already slipping into the sea, and now comes the oil. Driscoll wonders how much the ecosystem can take. We don't know. We're playing roulette with these Louisiana marshes. They're under many, many threats. Um, They're in a working landscape, and that puts them at more risk for things like oil and gas spills. We don't know. This fragile system is very productive. There's a threshold, so you may have increased productivity for a time period before a crash. We're afraid of the crash. We don't know what will be the tipping point. The oil makes that tipping point probably closer. Jiskel and other scientists and conservationists in the region are settling in for the long haul. Stopping the gushing oil in the Gulf may be a race, but understanding the ecological impact is a marathon. Somewhere out there, just to the southeast, is the shifting slick, at times as large as Maryland and always moving with wind and currents. And underneath? Well, that's hard to say. Some researchers detected subsurface plumes of oil tens of miles long. But they have questions about just how much oil, its consistency, and its behavior in the water. As it turns out, just up the beach on Grand Isle, I run into someone who might be able to help answer some of those questions. Hans Thomas is with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute. We were brought out by British Petroleum to operate some oceanographic sampling gear. We have a little underwater robot that can swim all the way to the bottom near where the leak site is and sample water and bring it back to us on the ship. What would you learn from that? 
what we'd learn is kind of twofold. First of all, we'd be able to understand how the dispersants are interacting with the oil, and then we'd also be able to understand how the oil is distributing itself in the water column so that we'd have a better idea of exactly how much oil is coming out and where it is and where it's going to go. And one of the things that we're going to try to do with all of this data is put it into more of a comprehensive context of, of how this oil is going to end up impacting both life at the surface of the ocean and, more importantly, life at the bottom of the ocean in the benthos. And that's, again, going to be very critical to understanding what's going to be going on with this ecosystem five, ten years from now as this oil finally works its way through. This sounds like a great work, but we're standing on a beach. You're, you're not out there doing your work. Why is that? Uh, right now, we are still in consultation with NOAA and BP as to exactly what they want to study with our systems. And, you know, I'm hopeful that we'll, we'll get some work done. We came out here to try to help, and we're, we're anxious to do that. Other scientists are eager for the kind of data Thomas might provide. They are intensely concerned about the subsurface oil. It's a sort of wild card element here, with major implications for marine mammals like dolphin and the sperm whales that feed not far from the spill site, for the endangered bluefin tuna now spawning in the Gulf, and for sea turtles nesting on Florida's coasts. That's where David Godfrey expects to see the oil's effects soon. I personally think it's almost certain that we will. Godfrey directs the Caribbean Conservation Corps. He says now that some oil has entered what's known as the loop current, that will likely bring it to Florida's waters, just as turtle nestlings emerge. Very shortly, turtles are going to start hatching in the millions from the coast of Florida. And those hatchlings make their way into the very currents that's carrying all this oil and tar. And the little turtles are opportunistic feeders. They will grab anything that's floating around in those currents, namely tar balls. So uh, there have been a lot of studies done looking at hatchlings gathered up in these currents following previous spills, and almost every one of them ends up with tar in their mouths and in their guts. Across the Gulf from those Florida beaches, on the Texas coast south of Corpus Christi, I hitch a ride with a team of scientists from Texas Tech University. The boat skims across the shallow Laguna Madre, the Mother Lagoon, one of the world's few hypersaline coastal ecosystems. Redfish and mullet break the surface, dolphin arc along. Our destination is Green Island. It's a rookery jam-packed with shorebirds. Birds are just everywhere in the brush here. Another roseate spoonbill just went overhead. This is like Manhattan for shorebirds. Steps lead to a bird blind just above the mesquite and prickly pear. The island is carefully guarded by David Newstead and his crew at the Coastal Bend Bays and Estuaries Program. There's a whole range of pretty much all of the herons and egrets that breed on the coast are here. Uh, great egrets, great blue herons. What else do we have? Little blue herons, snowy egrets, tricolored herons. Uh, reddish egrets, there's both white and dark morph of reddish egrets. Uh, and this is probably the most important colony for reddish egrets in the world. Up to between 500 and 1,000 pairs breeding here. The whole island is a collage of long legs and feathers, flashes of pink, blue, and brilliant white. For Ron Kendall, this is an example of what's at stake in the Gulf. He directs the Institute of Environmental and Human Health at Texas Tech. 
if oil gets access to these kinds of areas, it's not only difficult to clean up, but it's, it could be devastating for the food source. So you may not necessarily have to directly kill the birds by oil, but you, when you take away a food source or the habitat, for instance, um, the turtle grass flats, the inland uh, flats where all your juvenile fish and, and shrimp and crabs are, those are areas you got to protect. That's why all these birds are here. Now, you've got the barrier islands out there, um, and we're a long way from where the oil is now. Are you really concerned that you'll see oil here? Well, we know that uh, we've had uh, millions and millions of gallons of oil uh, leaked into the Gulf now, and some of it's on the surface. Um, But it's not necessarily just what's on the surface. It's what's in the water column and what's on the bottom. We've got a calm day today, but that's not necessarily always calm. And we're nearing hurricane season. And so we don't know yet what that can do to mobilize oil that may be existing in plumes below the surface of the sea offshore. It may then translocate that oil from offshore to onshore. Kendall and his colleagues are already monitoring water and sediment to establish a data baseline and to be ready for the first traces of oil. Kendall's a leading figure in wildlife toxicology. He edits a scientific journal and wrote widely used textbooks. And he's worked on a lot of oil spills. This one has him worried. The oil is going to go somewhere. We know it's in the Gulf, and we feel at this time there's really no area on the Gulf Coast that's that's truly safe from the effects of this current oil spill. You know, just looking around here, this is such a just ridiculous display of life and and it seems so so full of life and so strong and resilient an ecosystem it's hard to imagine that it couldn't uh, bounce back against some some insult like uh, some oil well there's a, a delicate balance here i mean all of these um these birds uh, uh have evolved to utilize these habitats and this this resource and to me, here on Green Island and the Laguna Madre, this is an enormous reflection of what these ecosystems can produce if just given a little protection and a little chance. And at the same time, they can be destroyed and uh, they can be taken away from us very quickly. The Gulf Coast is filled with paradoxes. It's one of our richest fishing grounds and richest oil fields. It floors you with its abundance and variety, then reminds you just how fragile the whole thing can be. It has come back from oil spills before. Now those who study the Gulf will monitor, measure, and wait to see if it can do it again. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young, reporting from the Gulf of Mexico. Michelle Obama does it, thousands of New Yorkers do it, and you too can grow a garden, even if you live in the inner city. That's the message Patty Moreno is pushing. She's a native New Yorker, but admits her first horticultural attempts were dismal. Starting out, I was horrible. I killed everything I ever planted. But my first success was with some fruit trees. I actually grew apples. They're the most delicious thing ever. So I was like, oh my gosh, I can actually plant a plant and eat from it too. I just started branching out from there. 
Today, Patty Moreno cultivates 30 raised beds in Boston. She produces so many zucchini and tomatoes and greens, each summer she opens up a farm stand in front of her home. Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom headed to Boston's Roxbury neighborhood to check out Patty's brand of urban sustainable living. I just want to see if there are any eggs under these ladies over here. No, no eggs. Bummer. They start producing eggs actually at 20 weeks. That'll be like a few a week. Then as they mature, one a day. For the average person that wanted to have, you know, backyard chickens, how feasible is it? It's so easy. It's much easier than a dog. Like, you never have to walk them, (laughs) unless you want to. They are my garden helpers. They, you know, scratch and till the soil for me. They eat all the bugs, and then they fertilize it. Let's go over to my smaller garden. We're going to get to work a little bit over here. You're going to put me to work? We're going to put you to work. This is basically a demonstration garden that I wanted to put together to show what you could do in like an average size backyard. Being Puerto Rican, one of the raised beds I plant every year is a Latin Caribbean mixture of beans and peppers and cilantro. All of the things that you would need to make this thing called sofrito which is like a base flavor for a lot of the food that you would eat in Latin Caribbean culture. I have a four by four raised bed that's two tiers high. And then I have a square foot grid that I made that fits right into the raised bed. And that's going to be basically our guide um, as to where we're planting everything. We're going to companion plant. In this whole bed, we're going to be able to make an amazing uh, stir-fry. So we're going to have, you know, the eggplant, a Siamese dragon stir-fry mix, which just has tons of different Asian greens in them. Arranging different configurations of raised beds is like my hobby. That's just fun for me. That's Saturday night, planning raised beds. It's a party. Look, Asian greens are nice. It's nice. Spicy, it's different taste. How about some potatoes and some corn and some lettuce? My name is Robert Patton Sproul, and I'm Patricia's husband. I want a record of potato. I want to do 800 pounds of potato, and I'm trying to do 200 pounds of corn. Wait a second. How big is this garden that you're growing all this in? I'll show it to you. It's not that big. (laughs) It's only four by eight. This part is for his man garden this year. You know, a lot of people grow potatoes in trash barrels. And that's the coolest thing ever, because basically they put the potato at the very bottom of like six inches of soil, and as it grows up, they keep filling soil around it. And then at the end of the year, they dump it out on a tarp, pull all the potatoes out, and they start over again. And then that one trash can version, people have done really gigantic amounts of potato in it. We, every year, manage to eat so many meals from the garden. You know, the supermarket people do not know me.
urbanites, it's our responsibility to start being as sustainable as we possibly can because very near future, there's going to be 70% of the world's population is going to live in cities. Anything you grow and then eat is going to be the tastiest thing you've ever had. As long as you don't burn it, you're fine. And it's a lot of fun. Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom prepared that audio portrait of Patty Moreno and her inspiring garden. And there's more at our website, LOE.org. Coming up, the heady scent of hidden chemicals in your perfume. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Today, another story from our sister online initiative called Planet Harmony, where all are welcome and the focus is on young people of color. American Eagle 77, J-Lo Glow, Calvin Klein's Eternity. These fragrances are cool these days. So Ebony Payne and Ike's Reese Condoraja from Planet Harmony decided to look into a recent study by an environmental think tank. It found many of these fragrances have secret chemicals that could potentially trigger allergies and disrupt hormones. Their report starts with Ebony Payne chatting with some shoppers at a mall in northwest Washington, D.C. Do you use any products with fragrance in it or any perfume? Always. And do you know what ingredients goes into making your products? Not really. I know there's alcohol in there. I don't know. I have no idea. Would you feel more comfortable buying fragrances if manufacturers actually labeled their ingredients like they do on food? Yes, that would be good. My daughter, she's sensitive to a lot of things because she has eczema. So I always make sure that things are more natural-based. These days, yes, because I do not trust big companies anymore. Yeah, I mean, I'll feel more comfortable, but then again, I won't know what the ingredients are because there's all these long, complicated names and you still, I mean, you have to Google them. What if you were told that the ingredients in your cologne and perfume cause sperm damage and may cause an asthma attack? How would you feel about that? I don't know. Now you're making me think. Maybe I'll go and read, you know, what they contain. You're killing me. Um, I would probably have to stop just because I don't want to do anything knowingly harm myself. I would not use it anymore. That will be a shocker. I wouldn't really want to use that. There are other ways to smell good. This is Ike Sreeskandaraja. As Planet Harmony and Living on Earth's Ebony Payne found out, most people can't know what's in their colognes or perfumes. And since fragrance makers won't disclose their chemical recipes, an advocacy group decided to run their own tests. The campaign for Safe Cosmetics analyzed a number of popular fragrance brands like Coco Chanel, Calvin Klein, Halle Berry, and Jennifer Lopez. Jane Houlihan of the Environmental Working Group helped author the report on fragrance. So we sent these 17 products to the laboratory. 
the lab analyzed them for a range of compounds and found for these fragrances that we tested, only about half the chemicals that are in the product are actually listed on the label. That means there's an awful lot that you can't know as a consumer when you're buying these products. And what people don't know could be harming them. The lab tests turned up some potentially hazardous ingredients. Together, these products contain about 24 different sensitizing chemicals that can cause allergic reactions and a dozen potential hormone disruptors. These are compounds that in very small doses could possibly throw the body's hormone systems into disarray. Jane Houlihan says hormone disruptors, even in low doses, can pose dangers. We also found a chemical called diethyl phthalate hidden in a number of these products. That's a chemical that's linked to sperm damage in men, birth defects in baby boys. This is preliminary data, not considered definitive, but it's quite troubling. When reached for comment, Cody Incorporated, the company that owns three of the brands named in this study, Halley by Halle Berry, JLo Glow by JLo, and Calvin Klein Eternity, directed us to a written statement, read here by an actor. All of Cody Inc.'s products are safe and meet all regulatory and legal requirements in all countries in which they are sold. Coco Chanel also declined comment but sent a release from the industry group, the Fragrance Materials Association. Here's our actor again reading part of their response. The industry has a long and comprehensive safety testing program for its materials. Materials are also independently assessed for safety. The industry also says Congress recently omitted diethyl phthalate from a list of phthalates of concern. So who's got it right here? We checked with someone who reviewed the Campaign for Safe Cosmetics fragrance report on her own. I have to have an independent research funding, so I have no conflict of interest. I fund my own work through um, discretionary university research funding. From the University of Washington, that's Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering Ann Steinemann. She spent extensive time studying fragrances. Yes, I have. I actually have conducted several studies that analyzed the chemicals in widely used fragrance consumer products, and that's a big part of my research right now. The fragrance industry guards recipes as trade secrets, but they publish a list of 3,000 ingredients on their website. But there's no way to know which chemicals are in what products. Professor Steinman says that no matter how they defend the industry's lack of transparency, the health impacts on its customers are real. I guess the other point is that people are reporting adverse health effects when exposed to these products. So rather than try to repudiate their complaints by saying, well, we tested these products and they're safe, so you must be imagining it, why not say, well, people are getting sick from it. What's in these products that's causing these effects? Concerns over potentially poisonous potpourri goes way beyond perfume makers. Fragrances are in nearly half of all personal care products, from Arctic Blast deodorant to lavender passion soap. But these scenting chemicals are now getting attention on Capitol Hill. There are signs that big changes are about to happen. Again, Jane Houlihan of the Environmental Working Group. And this is great news because this law which regulates all industrial chemicals in this country, hasn't been updated for more than three decades. It's the only major environmental and public health statute that has never been modernized. And it could mean a lot of changes for the cosmetic industry. Currently, there are various chemical reform bills working through the House and Senate. For Living on Earth and Planet Harmony, I'm Ike Sris Kandaraja. Ike Sris Kandaraja edits and Ebony Payne reports for our brand new online offering, Planet Harmony which welcomes all and is designed to have special appeal for young African-Americans. Check it out and join the discussion at MyPlanetHarmony.com. That's MyPlanetHarmony.com.
Recently, the journal Pediatrics reported a link between exposure to pesticides and the condition ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. It seems that almost every week we learn some unsettling bit of news about the effects of chemicals in our food or water or air or the products we use. Environmental chemicals have long been a concern for author and biologist Sander Steingraber, particularly those linked to cancer. In a new film based on her groundbreaking book of more than a decade ago, Ms. Steingraber explains why her own cancer diagnosis as a young woman left lingering questions about the disease. I'm one of those people who really does come from a family with a lot of cancer in it. I wasn't the first in my family to be diagnosed. My aunt went on to die of the same kind of bladder cancer that I had. I have uncles with prostate cancer, colon cancer. But the punchline of my story is that I'm adopted. Sandra Steingraber's book, Living Downstream, laid out evidence showing links between environmental toxins and cancer rates in her hometown. Now, a new edition of the book and a film of the same name expands the evidence of the relationship between our health and our environment. Sandra Steingraber, welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks, Steve. Where did you grow up? And tell me why you relate the cancer you developed as a young adult to the environment in which you were raised. I grew up right in the middle of the middlest state in, the, in America, uh, the second of the three I states. Illinois is both an industrial state. We have 30 different industries along the Illinois River Valley. And indeed, I could look out my back door and see all the smokestacks of industry. But I could look out the front door and see the farm fields of agriculture. So it's also a very agricultural state. And as a young biologist, I knew that families have more in common than just chromosomes, that we share an environment. Uh, I used some of my background in biology to be able to read the medical literature, and I learned that my particular cancer, bladder cancer, is considered a kind of quintessential environmental cancer. We actually know more about the environmental contributions to that disease than many others. And so I was really interested not just in my own cancer, but the cancer rate of the whole area, because I'm only a sample size of one so yeah, there are, it turns out there are bladder carcinogens that periodically turn up in my hometown drinking water wells. For example? Well, perchloroethylene is one. That's a, a solvent that's used to dry clean clothes. It's also used in machine shops, which is probably in my hometown how it found its way into the drinking water wells. Trihalomethanes are another group of chemicals that are actually created when we chlorinate water. So I've never actually claimed that drinking water with these suspected bladder carcinogens in it as a child is what gave me bladder cancer. But what I do say from a human rights point of view, when these chemicals are allowed free access to our environment and trespass their way into our bodies, somebody's going to get cancer. And that's the problem. What about this gap between what's known about cancer and the environment and what's communicated and the way people behave about it? Why does this gap persist? I think there are probably multiple reasons for it. When you go into the doctor's office, you always fill out questionnaires about your family medical history, and there are no questions that ask you about, you know, where is your water supply compared to the toxic waste landfill? What are you exposed to in your occupation? We come to believe the source of cancer must lie within the DNA machinery of our cells. I think that we spent a lot of time in the 1990s searching for cancer genes, but 
The field of study now called epigenetics reveals that, in fact, there is another layer of instructions on top of our genome called the epigenome to mediate environmental messages streaming in from the outside world. And so the new thinking now within the scientific community about the way genes and environment interact is more like a piano with our genes as the keyboard, if you will, and the environment as the hands of the pianist. You could play Bach or you could play improvisational jazz, it's the same keyboard, it's the same DNA, but the environmental messages have changed. And so really, we need to see cancer as the result of an interaction between genes and the environment. At one point, you go back to where you grew up in Illinois, and uh, you have an interesting conversation with your cousin, who's a farmer. Let's listen to some of that from your movie, Living Downstream. We will use a little bit of atrazine usually in the spring, and it'd be nice not to have to use any. It's expensive. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, in production ag today, it's pretty difficult not to. We try very hard to pick our places we use it. We want to keep it out of the water sources. You know, we stay, you know, hundreds of feet from any open creeks or surface drains, wells, things like that. Your cousin is using atrazine, which is banned, actually, in the country where the company that makes it is headquartered. Switzerland, much of Europe, it is banned. Yet scientists here in the U.S. say there's not enough damning evidence. First, before I ask you about your cousin, how much evidence does it take to ban a chemical? I don't think there's one answer to that. The filmmaker Shanda Shivanis, I think, made a very wise decision to choose two chemicals to stand in for the hundreds that I kind of review in Living Downstream, atrazine being one and PCBs being another. And I think it's a study in contrast. PCBs are one of the handful of chemicals we abolished in the 1970s on the basis of less evidence than we have now for atrazine. And that turns out to have been a very good decision because new research keeps showing us how strong the link is between PCBs and certain kinds of cancer. And here's atrazine. The Europeans banned it based on the, their belief that it's inherently unmanageable chemical. Because it dissolves in rain, it runs into the water, it evaporates, finds its way into fog and snowflakes and raindrops. So here's my cousin John, one of the most caring people I know. And yet, like so many other farmers, he uses a chemical that is a, one of the most common chemical contaminants of drinking water. I'm sure he is being extremely careful, but the Europeans have decided that no one can be careful enough with atrazine. It's like opening Pandora's box. It's just unmanageable. And yet we have the same data available to us and we reach a different conclusion. It took you, what, four years to make this film, you said. And in the course of making it, you have a test that revealed some abnormal cells in your own body. I did. I took the camera crew in with me to one of my cystoscopic checkups. In so doing, I thought, well, I'll pull back the curtain of privacy around this exam, which is so common and familiar to me, but probably most people don't have a visual image of it. And it's an excellent tool of early detection. It saves lives. It should be me who brings a camera crew into this room. Then I got this unexpected result back from that particular exam. The thing that cancer patients usually do when a test comes back ambiguous is simply pull the curtains of silence around yourself and keep your own counsel. 
but it's a kind of high wire act because one wrong word, you know, somebody says something a little too reassuring or they express a little too much worry, it knocks me off the high wire. The high wire being I have to be vigilant, I have to advocate for myself, I'm going to need a second opinion, I'm going to need to do some research, but I'm not going to panic. I'm going to hope for the best. So I'm seeking to make sure that we look as hard as we can for something that I don't want to find. That's a very hard psychic place to be, and usually you want to have a lot of privacy around you. But we're in the middle of making film, and so I knew that I was going to have to talk about these results within the real time of the film, and so we did. Is there a parallel between this personal uncertainty and that of scientists who are looking, say, for the hard proof about the danger of chemicals. You get an ambiguous result that could portend something. So that's an interesting parallel, actually. I think certainly based on the result of any one study, uh, even if it's statistically significant, we can't conclude much. And so we're always in the scientific community looking across in different fields of study, veterinary science, epidemiology, lab bench work, to see whether there's a kind of state of the evidence that's beginning to emerge. And the question of our age is, at what time do you decide you have enough data to take action and do something differently? What have you done to take action amidst this uncertainty? I'm really interested in taking an upstream approach, a public health approach to these issues. I'm not interested, for example, in trying to have my children live inside some kind of non-toxic bubble. Moreover, there are many problems that we face that there are no individual solutions for. Most likely, my bladder cancer came through an exposure in drinking water. Well, it turns out that most of our exposure to carcinogens in drinking water doesn't actually come from drinking the water. It comes from bathing and showering. So you can drink all the water from France or Fiji that you want in your bottles, but every time you step in the shower, you're having a very intimate relationship with your public drinking water supply. So you can't opt out of the food chain or the water cycle. You know, what is in the air, the water, and the food rearranges itself and becomes our blood and our flesh and our exhaled breath and our urine. If we don't want these chemicals in our bodies, we can't have them in the environment. Sandra Steingraber is author of Living Downstream and uh, the principal player in a film of the same name. Thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. We leave you this week in the green... Green Island, that is, in the south of Texas. This tiny island in Laguna Madre, Texas, is a protected rookery and home to more than 400 species of birds, including white ibis, black-crowned night herons, as well as great blue ones, reddish egrets, and roseate spoonbills. Living on Earth's Jeff Young joined Audubon scientists in this avian haven as they prepared for possible impact from the Gulf oil spill. He sent us these sounds. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Smith, Ike Sriskandaraja, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young, with help from Sarah Calkins and Sammy Souza. Our interns are Emily Guerin and Bridget McDonald. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our theme. 
You can find us anytime at LOE.org. And check out our new Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. And Pax World Mutual Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.